Bonnie Nettles first met Brother Francis in the winter of 71, and they struck up an unlikely friendship. Bonnie, a lapsed Baptist, working as a nurse in her hometown of Houston, probably never thought she'd find herself seeking spiritual guidance from an honest-to-God Franciscan monk, especially given the affinity she'd developed in the past few years for astrology and the occult. Her husband Joseph was doing his best to be supportive of his wife's unusual new hobbies, but by that point she was hosting weekly seances in their living room, and he had some reservations about the constant parade of so-called spiritual mediums she was bringing into their home. The rift growing between them was getting hard to deny, and he was starting to worry. Not just about their marriage, but about the effect all this occult stuff, this darkness, might be having on their four young children. Joseph loved his wife. But this Brother Francis thing was just a bridge too far. It wasn't that Joseph was a jealous or controlling man. It was just that Brother Francis was kind of famous. After all, he was an officially recognized saint in the Catholic Church, and he'd been dead for more than 800 years. But Bonnie was determined to ride out this new, ever-evolving spiritual journey, which to her felt no more dark or dangerous than any Sunday sermon. One clear, cloudless night, she took her daughter Terry out into the backyard and hand in hand they stared up at the big, bright Texas sky. A tiny light flashed across the horizon for a split second before disappearing into the blackness between the stars. A flying saucer. Bonnie squeezed Terry's hand and whispered, wouldn't it be fun if it just pick us up and take us away? To ring in the new year, Bonnie treated herself to a tarot reading downtown. The fortune teller spread the cards on the table and with an eerie air of confidence, foretold a chance meeting that would change the course of Bonnie's life forever. She wasn't exactly a skeptic, but still, she thought it might be best to get a second opinion, then a third, and a fourth. But every palm reader and strip mall psychic told her the same thing. You'll soon meet a mysterious man, tall, with light hair and fair complexion. And two months later, she did. Marshall Herf Applewhite was in a bad place. After ditching seminary school, he'd gone to New York to pursue his dream of musical theater, but it didn't work out. He took a teaching job in Arizona, but he was promptly fired when word got out that he was having an affair with a male student. His wife and children back in Houston abandoned him, but something still compelled him to come back to Texas, to come home. He scored a gig teaching music at a Houston college, even garnered some local fame for his talent but the emotional turmoil was eating him from the inside out. He resigned and gave New Mexico a go, got a decent job popular with the locals, but it just didn't feel right. Within a few months, he was back in Texas, and still he found no peace. His father died only a few weeks after he moved back to Houston, leaving him alone and listless in a confusing, claustrophobic world. He couldn't hold down a job, his sexuality tormented him, his debts consumed him, and he was sinking deep into the quicksands of depression. The more he struggled against it, the faster and farther it pulled him down. Without family, without love, he was drowning with nothing to grab hold of and no reason even to reach. Until he met Bonnie. We can't say for sure how or where it happened. Bonnie's kids say it was at a drama school theater. Others say it was at the ER after he suffered a near-death experience. Some say it was a mental institution. But as Herf tells it, he was visiting a friend at the hospital when, quote, Mrs. Nettles entered the room, and our eyes locked in a shared recognition of esoteric secrets. I felt like I'd known her a long time, as though we'd met before in a past life. 
and Bonnie felt it too. She gave him an astrology reading right then and there, instantly divining what she called an alignment between their stars. Within days, they'd moved in together, and even though their relationship was entirely platonic, Herf and Bonnie were inseparable, two halves of the same whole, soulmates destined to be together, in this world and the next. Joseph obviously didn't take that so well. He divorced her, and with Bonnie's blessing, took custody of the kids. She loved them, of course, but her true purpose in life, in the universe, was greater than any earthly bond, even blood, could restrain. Bonnie and Herf, as they tell it, were just two unsuspecting humans in Houston, called to fulfill a prophecy long foretold. They'd been incarnated by the souls of space aliens and reborn as holy shepherds, destined to die and live again like Christ himself. And someday soon, they and all those willing to follow would be lifted up and out of their human shells to an alien spacecraft where together they'd fly home to glory in the kingdom of heaven. In 1973, they toured the American Southwest, witnessing for the non-believers. This new revelation, this miracle. But folks just weren't all that receptive to their strange brew of biblical doomsaying and literal Star Trek trivia. The Earthlings, it seemed, just weren't ready for God's salvation. Bonnie and Herf were starting to lose hope when, by chance or otherworldly intervention, a spark of light appeared in this world gone dark. It was a letter from a friend back in Houston. She wanted to hear them out to learn what they had to teach and be a part of whatever this great big thing was destined to be. And just like that, God's guiding light once again led them home. Two years later, the trio hit the road to bring the good news to a wayward world, carrying little more than the clothes on their backs and a box of flyers emblazoned with a headline no one could ignore. The second coming of Christ, it read, will be a Texan. As any Texan can tell you, there's a strange kind of magnetism about this place. This deep-rooted yearning inside all of us that even the most contented expat can't ignore. They can resist it, reject it, even revile it, but it's there. Sometimes it's a whisper, sometimes a scream, but it never leaves us, never lets us forget where we truly belong. And it's not just us born and bred natives. People from all over the globe have felt that connection that otherworldly pull drawing them back to a place they've never been and yet somehow always known. This is a land of true believers, both a beacon and a breeding ground for faith and fanaticism, for unbreakable hope and unspeakable horror. It's a refuge for all who seek it, a promised land for the doomed and a sanctuary for the damned. Whether by the grace of God or the hands of the devil, Texas just has a way of calling its children home. I'm Ryan Sheffield. And I'm Brad Dewar. And this is Texarkana. take you along with us on a spiritual journey, a full custom gospel revival in two parts, each a series of vignettes spanning 200 years of the faithful and the faded. Some folks come to Texas for refuge, 
like the Quakers fleeing persecution for refusing to renounce their pacifism in the Civil War. They built a new town, Estacado, and they brought with them the first ever crops and schools in the Texas Panhandle. But when another town nearby became the official county seat, it bled Estacado's population dry, and what little remained was devoured by a swarming plague of locusts. Some folks come to Texas with utopian dreams, like political pundit Glenn Beck, who, in the wake of the 2012 election, tearfully declared that America was, quote, utterly and completely lost in darkness. He announced a $2 billion plan to build a libertarian utopia, kind of a bizarre hybrid of Walt Disney's Epcot and the last 200-some-odd pages of Atlas Shrugged. According to a press release published by his own news outlet, The Blaze, quote, it is that very ideal Beck strives to emulate. In fact, that's why he moved to Texas. Beck teamed up with native Texan and revisionist historian David Barton, the living antithesis of this podcast, to bring his utopia to life. They called it Independence USA, a self-sustaining community that would produce its own news, entertainment, research and development, and function as a model capitalist marketplace, complete with a planned residential community, a theme park, and a church shaped like the Alamo. In the center of town would be a lake the size of Disneyland and a massive national archive where residents could send children and wayward journalists to be, quote, deprogrammed. The proposition was met with a resounding chorus of laughter in the media and more than a few embarrassing comparisons to the so-called Marxist social engineering that Beck supposedly sought to escape. The project fizzled out after a year or so, and as far as we could tell, Beck has since scrubbed every mention of it from The Blaze and Wikipedia. He still lives here, though, about a 15-minute drive from us. But not everyone comes here with grandiose visions of hope. Some folks come to Texas for much darker reasons, like Michel Rostand and his Budafield cult, who set up shop in Austin back in 1992. We originally planned to include their story, but we decided the documentary Holy Hell had it pretty well covered. If you haven't seen it, watch it. After you finish this podcast, of course. The deeper we got into our research, the more obvious it became that we couldn't possibly cram everything into just one episode, so we're spreading it out over two. But don't worry, they're both a series of chronological vignettes that can stand on their own, so we won't be leaving you with a cliffhanger or anything like that. This episode is about utopian dreams and their lonesome death on the prairie. The next will be about the nightmares that grow over the ruins. Some of the stories might be familiar, some obscure, but the strange ties that bind them together make for one hell of a Sunday sermon. When he lost his re-election to Congress, Davy Crockett famously told the Tennessee electorate, You may all go to hell, and I will go to Texas. But he soon found out the hard way that those two destinations aren't always as far apart as they seem. The 1840s were a decade of global upheaval and revolution. The Western world was in the throes of an existential crisis, and it was dragging the rest of the world down with it. Kingdoms rose and fell and rose again. Republics were built and burned, and not over the course of centuries or decades, but often within a matter of months. The Industrial Revolution had ushered in a new era of political and economic uncertainty and formed an unprecedented shift and rift in the structure and stability of society. Feudalism had finally died, run through by a pitchfork in the Hungarian plains, but its ghosts lingered behind, an invisible hand conjuring smokestacks from the ashes and dragging the serfs from the fields to the factory floor. 
Skilled labor was supplanted by unskilled workers, replaceable at a whim or at the faintest hint of insubordination. Disposable. Epidemics of crime, food shortages, and unemployment, the crumbling guild system, and the obliteration of social safety nets found neighbor pitted against neighbor in a death race to the bottom, as the specters of obsolescence and starvation nipped at their heels. The people were angry and scared. They could all feel that invisible hand tightening around their throats, but the burden they shouldered and shared only served to drive them further apart. The factory owners, investors, and aristocrats recognized the danger all this widespread fear and rage posed to their power and profit. They needed a way to weaponize it, deflect it away, downward, and they found their scapegoat in the wave of immigrants and refugees that was spreading across Europe amid the chaos. Many in the working class got caught up in the populist rhetoric of authoritarians and demagogues, embracing the belief that the hand around their throats was the benevolent hand that feeds and that their true enemy was these strange new people with their strange new customs, colors, and religions who were coming to take that hand for themselves. They were sold on the aspirational promise that if they work hard enough and ask for nothing, one day it could be their hands around their brothers' throats. But others, especially skilled laborers, artisans, and academics, went the other direction, conceiving and embracing the fledgling schools of thought that would come to define leftism a century later. Prominent radical thinkers were emerging all over Europe. Marx, Hugo, Wagner, Dostoevsky, to name a few. Even in rugged individualist America, folks were warming up to new ideas. Membership in the Unitarian Church was booming, and even the more hardline religious sects, horrified by the rise of American consumerism, were starting to see the merits in a more communitarian way of life. Transcendentalism, inspired by authors like Emerson and Thoreau, was gaining traction and stirring up calls for liberty and social justice. Even those in the middle class felt like the country's founding principle, that all men are created equal, was being paved over in the short-sighted pursuit of profit. There were nearly 80 utopian communities founded in America in the 1840s alone. People all over the world were desperately searching for a place to start over and remake society from the ground up. And Texas, with its abundance of cheap land, suddenly found itself thrust into the global spotlight. And nowhere more so than France. France and Texas have always had a unique relationship. For a short time in the 1600s, the French flag flew over the territory, one of the six that gave the theme park franchise its name. Yeah, you're welcome. Over the centuries, Texans and the French have both romanticized and vilified one another, often for the very same reasons. And whether we, or they, like it or not, were forever entwined by our shared history. And in keeping with long-standing Texas tradition, we'll make no apologies for our terrible French pronunciations and our even worse accents. The French National Assembly, their equivalent of our House of Representatives, arranges its seating from one wing of the chamber to the other to reflect the members' positions on the political spectrum. It's a tradition dating back to the French Revolution, when aristocrats were seated to the speaker's right and commoners to the left. The meanings evolved at the times, but the terms left-wing and right-wing stuck around. And when Etienne Cabet took his seat in the Chamber of Deputies in 1831, there wasn't much of anything to his left but the chamber wall. He'd made a name for himself as a radical author and activist, and only a year before taking office, he'd helped orchestrate the overthrow of King Charles X. His election to Parliament gave him a powerful new platform and a new monarch to bring down. When Louis-Philippe took the throne, he promised to balance the needs of the people and the desires of the gentry. 
to bridge the divide between the Republic and the Crown. But Kabe saw it for what it really was, empty lip service meant to placate the masses and keep their pitchforks safely buried in the hay. He immediately got to work excoriating the new regime for its abuses of power, neglect of the people, and blatant deference to the rich. Kabe was determined to keep the pitchforks right where they belonged, held high in solidarity, tines pressed firmly to the throat of power. And that didn't go over so well with the ruling class. After only two years in office, Kabe was charged with les majestie, treason against the monarchy, a charge that carried a punishment of five years in prison. But French law at the time had an unusual loophole. If a convict could avoid apprehension for the duration of their sentence, it expired and they just walked scot-free. So when it came time to face the jailer, Kabe made a break for it. He traveled to England for five years of self-imposed exile, cut off from the world as he knew it, without connections or any prospect of a job. He got a first-hand taste of true, real-life poverty and the cruel ironies of industrial labor, a system where the poor spun their own destitution into another man's gold. Now, destitute himself, Kabe was getting a crash course in the human condition just grateful to find a bit of bread in a street that doubled as a sewer, literally. And then he got the chance to meet the legendary Robert Owen. Born into a Welsh working-class family, Owen was the epitome of the capitalist self-made man. Self-educated, entrepreneurial, and motivated, he started a textile company from the ground up, and it made him an extremely wealthy man. But when he looked out on the factory floor below, he saw the workers' struggles, and having come from that world himself, he empathized. His views began to shift, and he soon quit the company to take up full-time activism. He became hugely influential in the establishment of trade unions, co-ops, free education, and child labor laws, and he was a pioneer of mutual aid. He was one of the first to call for an eight-hour workday, and may very well be the first person ever associated with the word socialist. In 1817, he publicly declared all religions false, which was a big deal at the time. Although in his twilight years, he got caught up in the trend of spiritualism and apparently had frequent chats with Ben Franklin's ghost. But we digress. Cabe was inspired by Owen, and he immersed himself in radical new philosophies, ones that found their roots in the blight of industrialization and abounded in the fields it left fallow. By the time he returned to France in 1839, Cabe was a full-blown utopian socialist, one of the first people ever to carry the label and he was dead set on putting his new theory into practice. He launched a monthly publication, Les Populaires, which became the socialist magazine of the time, and even coined a new term for his unique utopian vision, communisme, communism. He wrote a couple of books during his time in exile, including a novel, Voyage to Icaria. It was more or less a ham-fisted ripoff of Moore's Utopia, but it was a hit, and he garnered a respectable amount of international fame. Karl Marx wrote a review of it, and he wasn't a fan. He thought Cabet described a place that was a utopia in the truest definition of the word. Nowhere. There was one thing he liked about it, though. Communisme just had a nice ring to it, you know? Despite his idealism, Cabet was obsessed with laws, almost pathologically so, and he was convinced that any potential hiccup in his plan for an ideal world could simply be legislated away. If there ever was a living, breathing apotheosis of your uncle's Facebook straw man, it was Cabet. But the story struck a chord with the struggling craftsmen and working class of France, people who saw the world they'd always known crumbling around them, and saw themselves being reduced to cogs in some miser's infernal machine, one that bled them of purpose and meaning and offered but one choice, 
serve quietly as a, quote, plaything of the idle rich, or pray to God they wouldn't live long enough to watch their children starve. People were desperate for something, anything, a way out, and along came Cabet. His call for gender equality was especially popular with French women because even if Marx was right, even if Icaria was little more than a rose-colored vision of nowhere, it offered the women of France a chance to finally have their own voice. Cabet was amassing the kind of following his contemporaries could only dream of, and like anyone who finds themselves thrust into a position of power and influence over the broken, oppressed, listless, and desperate, Cabet had a choice to make one that many had made before him and that many more would make long after he was gone. Will I be a guide to my flock or will I be a god? By 1847, Cabe's followers were wearing uniforms and calling him by a new name, Père, Father. Meanwhile, in Texas, the newly minted Republic was struggling with a serious immigration problem. They just couldn't get enough of it. As strange as it sounds, the Texians were so desperate for people to come pouring over the borders, the government started offering land grants to anyone willing to settle the land, almost double the amount they gave vets for their service in the revolution. At the time, there were only 70,000 Texans spread out across the country that, depending on who you asked, was somewhere between the size of Poland and half the continental United States. But that's a story for another episode. They were practically giving the land away, begging people to take it, and still it proved to be a tough sell. The far-reaching tales of life on the Texas frontier read like southern gothic poetry, equal parts pulp romance, dime store western, and abject horror. The kind of place Edgar Allan Poe would have lovingly scorned, wistfully embraced, and never actually visited. Poetically enough, his writing desk is housed in an Austin museum, still booze-stained, cursed, and beautiful. Suffice it to say, even in the 1840s, Texas had a reputation, and we're still proud of it. Since the individual land grants weren't getting the reception they'd hoped for, the state decided to try out a program they'd learned from Mexico and Spain before them. Sure, it eventually resulted in violent revolutions and massive losses of territory for both countries, but hey, this is Texas. Hold our beer. The basic idea was to offer huge swaths of land, sometimes as much as a million acres, to so-called impresarios, who in turn agreed to go abroad and recruit people to settle the land. But not everyone in the Texas legislature was quite as stoked as their colleagues about bankrolling a flood of foreigners into the country. So they tacked on a caveat. In order to validate their claim to the land, settlers were obligated to build structures on their property and till large sections for planting all within an impossibly short window of time. If they failed to meet the deadline, ownership of the land immediately reverted back to the state. The cynical and unrealistic requirements meant that impresarios were heavily incentivized to recruit settlers as quickly as possible, even if it meant using less than ethical tactics. Honesty practically guaranteed failure, and embellishment, deception, lies, and coercion became vital tools of the trade. So naturally, corporations and investment firms jumped on the chance to get in the game, including one W.S. Peters and his St. Louis-based company. They snatched up grants left and right, acquiring millions of acres in North Texas, what eventually amounted to a landmass the size of South Carolina. But the Peters colony was plagued by turnover, mismanagement, and underhanded, if not outright illegal, business dealings. We'd be lying if we said we fully understand the whole situation. The vast majority of the records kept at the time were stolen or destroyed when an angry mob, fed up with Peters' bullshit, 
raided the office of his land agent, Henry Hedgecox, and literally ran him out of the county. It hardly counts as editorializing for us to say he deserved it, but the whole ordeal blew a gaping hole in the historical record of North Texas, and what little survived is spotty at best. In fact, this entire episode is chock full of conflicting accounts and contested details. Just know that we did the best we could, and if we get anything wrong, just blame Henry Edgecox. Peters wasn't exactly a principled man, and when he looked out across the Atlantic at the rising tide of socialism, all he saw were dollar signs. In 1847, he offered Robert Owen a million acres of land, which he swore up and down would be perfect for an experimental commune. Owen's interest was piqued, enough to sign some kind of preliminary contract on it, so when he got distracted by another project and wanted out of the deal, he had to recruit someone to take his place. A useful idiot, you might say. Who is that one utopian weirdo I met in England a few years back? The Frenchman. Etienne... Etienne... Cabet met up with Peters in England that September, and Peters had no trouble selling him on the virgin paradise of Texas. Peters offered him more land than he could imagine for only $2 an acre, no strings attached. Except for one little thing. He had only 10 months to meet the state's requirements or lose the land. Totally standard, no big deal, just legal mumbo jumbo. Just sign it. Make utopia real, make it yours. Namaste and kumbaya, just sign here. Cabet couldn't speak English, but the translator seemed competent enough. After all, he was being offered everything he'd ever wanted for just pennies on the dollar. What could possibly go wrong? Cabet put out the call to his readers in Le Populaire, inviting them to, quote, boldly give life to Acaria. Taking a cue from the impresarios, he waxed poetic on the health, temperature, fertility, and extent of the country, comparing the North Texas landscape to the Italian countryside. Now, we're from North Texas, and to be fair, neither of us has ever been to Italy, but we discussed it and we feel confident saying, dude, no. And the sales pitch only got more embellished with every telling. Cabet's primary focus was attracting wealthy investors for his socialist utopia, hoping it would grow quickly enough to meet his end of the land deal. Anyone who wanted to join the colony had to pay a fee of 600 francs per person and sign a lengthy contract written in dense legalese that was practically impossible for the average person to understand. So there's a good chance the signatories accidentally skimmed over the part where they consented to give Cabet near dictatorial powers over their lives. On January 29, 1848, the avant-garde of Acaria, a group of 69 young men all dressed in weird matching outfits, set sail into the English Channel bound for New Orleans. Cabet stood on the dock, making sure everyone in earshot knew the pain he felt at separation from his, quote, brothers and children. They waved goodbye to their father and sang the French national anthem with the altered lyrics he'd written to commemorate their new home. No more corruption, no more suffering, no more crime, no more sorrow. Too bad they were going to Texas. After six long weeks at sea, the weary Akarians shuffled down the gangplank to the sounds of celebration drifting up from the city streets below. Mirth and music, not quite English, not quite French, but both in turn, in unison, billowing through flags of here and home, red, white, and blue. As they dragged their luggage through the vibrant streets of New Orleans, the locals shared some jubilant news from the homeland. Revolution. While they'd been at sea, the people of France had once again stormed the streets. King Louis-Philippe had been overthrown, and the Republic born again. Well, we'll come back to that. It was good news and bad. It meant there was hope for France, a future beyond the reign of kings. 
young radicals like themselves might actually have a real chance at saving their homeland, remaking it in their own image. The bad news? They weren't going to be there. Four of the wealthier among them turned around on the spot and caught the next ship home, but the rest had already given up everything they had. They were bound by contracts and bound for Texas, whether they liked it or not. But Acaria was no place for pessimism or regret. Keeping their father's ideology of hope at the forefront of their minds, the remainder of the avant-garde forced a smile and trudged on. The plan was simple enough. Rendezvous with Cabe's contact, Charles Sully in Shreveport. Catch a boat westbound along the Red River to the northern edge of the Peters Colony, where a 40-mile hike to the south was all that stood between them and Utopia. There was just one little problem. Cabe knew next to nothing about America, much less Texas, much less about the Red River or its Great Raft a massive, impassable logjam that choked off the river from bank to bank, making Shreveport the end of the line. While Sully worked out an alternative route, the Akarians, confused, disenchanted, and more than a little pissed off, sat atop their baggage, figuratively and literally, and tried to stay positive. And they got lucky, sort of. While wandering the streets of the tiny port town, probably brooding over his life choices, one of the Akarians ran into someone he knew, a distant cousin who not only recognized him, but also happened to be a successful merchant with a fair amount of connections around town. He helped the pilgrims arrange transport for half their luggage to the Texas colony, the most they could afford. Sully came through with a new route, and within a few days, the avant-garde of Icaria crossed the border into Texas. Maybe it was their foreign manner, or just their creepy matching outfits, but the Icarians made quite an impression on the locals. One East Texas newspaper even did a flattering write-up on them, declaring the travelers, quote, An able set of fellows, well suited for the difficulties with which they are expected to meet. Unfortunately, they really weren't those kind of fellows. By the time they'd reached Sulphur Prairie, the halfway point, they'd spent two weeks walking in the ruthless Texas heat. They were dangerously low on supplies, and one of their wagons had broken an axle, rendering it more of a burden than a tool, and half the group had come down with dysentery. As they caught their breath, dressed their wounds, and likely lined up for the latrine, the Akarians realized they had a decision to make. They could just stay there in Sulphur Prairie, or they could turn back. Shreveport seemed nice enough, French enough, but they'd already made it this far. A handful of men were chosen to stay behind and serve as guides for the next wave of arrivals. A man named Adolphe Ganant stepped up to lead the rest, and a week later, the Akarians marched out of Sulphur Prairie. But once they crossed the Trinity River, the path to Cabe's paradise began to feel less like a pilgrimage and more like some Jobian test of faith. The region known as the Cross Timbers was, as historian W.E. Holland described it, a natural curiosity. Vast open prairies abruptly gave way to patches of dense forests and underbrush like fingers reaching up through the earth. It wasn't impassable or even all that dangerous but the grasslands offered no reprieve from the blazing sun, and the tangled brambles, thorns, and cacti of the woods offset any pleasures of the shade. Washington Irving even whined about it in one of his books, but that's a story for another episode. The invasive species of urban sprawl eventually came to dominate the landscape we now call the DFW Metroplex, but there's still some scattered green spaces where the cross timbers live on. After 12 days of walking, the Akarians found themselves in a wide open grassland of rolling hills nestled between two creeks a mile or so north of modern day Justin, Texas, their new home. 
undeniably pretty in its own way, but not exactly the Italian countryside Kabe had promised. But it didn't matter. Utopia wasn't something you found. It was something you made. Together. Adolphe Gnant, contract in hand, led the exhausted, starving Akarians to a nearby Peter's Company store to meet the land agent and seal the deal. Henry Hedgecox greeted the weary travelers true to form, wasting no time and mincing no words in laying out the details of the agreement. The deed he handed them was for one-tenth of the land Kabe had promised, and it wasn't even contiguous, just small plots scattered between tracts of Peter's Company land like a disjointed checkerboard. Worst of all, the deadline for them to meet the state requirements was only two months away. If they didn't build enough structures or till enough land, Akaria was over. The Akarians protested, but Hedgecocks just shrugged and waved them away. Tough titties, commies. If you can't read English, don't sign contracts. If I were you, I'd get to work. Daylight's burning. If you need supplies, you can buy them here, of course. And if you don't have cash, we've got credit. With interest, of course. Elsewise, get the hell out of my office. They were disappointed, sure, but they somehow compartmentalized it all. The confusion, anger, fear, and the unspoken but palpable pains of betrayal. They put their heads down and threw themselves into the daunting task ahead. Hope and optimism were the foundation of Ikaria, after all. But the physical foundations weren't going to build themselves. With construction underway, Gunat hiked all the way back to Sulphur Prairie to gather up as many of the remaining men as he could and bring them back to Akaria to help meet the looming deadline. They left most of their supplies behind to speed up the journey, hiking through the cross timbers carrying nothing but what they could fit in their rucksacks. They walked late into the night to avoid the heat and cover as much ground as they could before passing out, for a few hours at best, in dried up creek beds and blankets made of leaves. Rains bore down on them, flooding the cross timbers in torrents so intense they couldn't sleep without risk of drowning. For 12 days, they ate nothing but a mushy cocktail of cornmeal and rain. It's a miracle they survived, but they did. By the time they made it back to Akaria, they were half dead from exposure, malnourishment, and dysentery. But with the deadline looming, they just couldn't spare any time for rest or recovery. All they could do was clean their wounds, grab a hammer, and get to work. During the next few grueling weeks, Gunant sent regular dispatches to Kabe back in France, detailing their struggles but doing his best to keep up that Akarian optimism. We don't know for sure how much he glossed over or how many details he chose to leave out of the letters to his père, but it's hard to imagine he was all smiles after working 18 hours a day in the scorching summer heat while literally shitting blood. Kabe published the letters in La Populaire in an effort to spread the word and recruit new members. But tales of hardship, woe, and intestinal parasites don't exactly make the best ad campaign, so he punched it up a bit. They arrived in Nicaria after many fatigues, difficulties, and small adventures that are nothing in America compared to a thousand other treks. He cut out the negative details, the realities, and just made up the rest. He bombarded his readers with tales of, quote, the beautiful and rich lands of Akaria, an Eden of lovely woods and excellent water. Where the settlers were literally amazed at the fertility of the soil, the beauty of the sights, the explosion of the flowers, the purity of the air, and the healthfulness of the climate. Let's just say Kabe would have loved Twitter. But it wasn't all harmless hyperbole and spin. Kabe's proto-tweets had actual real-life consequences. 
he was actively urging the people of France to give up their political pursuits in their homeland, no matter how promising they actually were, and instead, quote, march all in a line to the prize for humanity. But for many of them, it would be a death march. Cabe was willfully conning people in their most desperate hour, telling them to give up their hope and their money, what little they had left of each, for a one-way ticket to nowhere. And worse, he was telling them to turn their backs on France at a time when their voices were needed most, when victory was within reach and the human rights of their countrymen were teetering on the edge of a knife. And it wasn't even about the money. It was about him, Cabe, his own pride and self-delusion of infallibility. It was about his vision, his following, his fragile ego and insecurity. He'd step beyond the flim-flam of the impresario and the scam of the grifter. He'd become a demagogue, a cult leader. Cabe described the hardship and tragedies of the avant-garde as nothing more than a few brave, dedicated Ikarians, quote, bending down to pick up their prize. But a quarter of them would never stand up again. The settlers were sleep-deprived and starving, working daily until they collapsed. The extreme and erratic shifts in weather from blistering heat to bone-chilling cold ravaged their constitution and left them vulnerable to disease. One by one, they fell victim to trembling fever, a parasite-borne illness native only to the stagnant creeks of the cross timbers, the only source of water they had for bathing, cooking, and drinking, not to mention the constant onslaught of mosquitoes, chiggers, and snakes. Their physician, Dr. Adolf Ganot, was in way over his head. Quinine was expensive and rarely in stock at the Peters Company store, and even then, Gano's medical knowledge was questionable at best. His go-to prescription for trembling fever was to find a shady spot by the creek, the same one that poisoned them in the first place, and just lay there until the fever broke, or more often than not, until they died. Four were dead by August, not counting the one fatally struck by lightning during a storm. All these factors taken together were devastating, but the psychological toll it took on them was something else altogether. The torturous conditions and endless frenetic work made for a dark cocktail of delirium, resentment, and for some, madness. As the body count climbed, the Ikarians turned their wrath on their doctor. They swarmed him, a ghastly mob of gaunt and skeletal men, skin mummified to leather by the sun, pestilent, delirious, and seething with rage. Dr. Gano fled in fear, running blind for a ranger outpost 20 miles deep in the Cross Timbers Wild. We don't know if he ever found it, but as far as we know, he was never seen again. The Ikarian's hope for survival fell suddenly on the shoulders of the only other doctor among them, a Catalan Spaniard named Juan Rovira. Rovira was a skilled physician and a determined man, but he was no match for the relentless assault of the Texas Wild. And as the horrors piled on and the bodies piled up, Rovira's mind began to fragment and fray. Most histories we found speak little about him, if they even mention him at all. But one word kept coming up in their records over and over again, deranged. The deadline of July 1st came crashing down on them, but in those two short, hellish months, the Akarians managed to build more than 30 structures. They were tiny and bare bones, sure, but it was still a hell of a feat. We're not clear on whether it was enough to meet the state requirements. The records are confusing at best, but by that point, contractual obligations were the least of their concerns. 
In their frantic rush to build, they'd neglected to plant crops, and it was August. The blazing summer sun had baked the soil into hard clay that promptly shattered the colony's only plow. But they still needed food, and there was only one place to get it. The Peters Company store. It seems the only thing they could grow in Acaria was debt, and as most of us know all too well, come harvest time, there's good reason to fear the reaper. On August 29, 1846, the second wave of Acarians, about a dozen sickly, exhausted, and bleeding men, stumbled out of the Cross Timbers woods, relieved and grateful to be among their brothers and Father Cabe's heaven on earth. But once they saw things up close, their leader, Pierre Favard, had but one word to describe it. Abominable. And it wasn't just the brutal conditions, circumstances, and fresh-turned graves. They were completely isolated. There was no line of transport, no realistic way to bring in supplies or travelers. Even if they did get the state's approval, even if they turned the crop yield around, even if they paid down the debt, fortified the structures, cured the diseases, managed not to die, it wouldn't matter. Akaria was doomed, and so were they. They were furious, anguished, terrified, and as people often do in that state, they started looking for someone to blame. Not their leader, of course, their father, Kabe. After all, no one likes to admit they've been conned. The Indians never bothered them, and the Texas Rangers were friendly enough, and the Peters Company was just doing its job, strangling them for profit. They couldn't just chalk it up to circumstance, misfortune, or their own gullibility. They needed validation, vindication, an excuse for their failure. They needed a villain with a motive and a face. So Pierre Favard stepped up to point the finger. Maybe it was jealousy or ambition, or maybe just plain old convenience. But Favard recognized just as well as any factory owner or aristocrat, when the people beneath you are suffering and starving, they need an outlet for their rage. And you sure as hell don't want it to be you. So you deflect it. You give them a scapegoat. You give them Adolphe Gunant. Not only was Gunant too incompetent to lead, Favard told them, but he was part of a dark conspiracy to bring them to ruin. He was a secret agent of the French government, a plant, working within the group to bring it down from the inside, to smear them and their father, undermine their success, and discredit their political ideals. They know we're right, and the people are with us, and so they conspire to rig the game and tear us down. They, and him, Adolphe Gunant, must have been, had to be, was, quote, paid to lead the colony into the wilds so it might perish. There was nothing Gunant could say or do. The Akarians had their narrative now, their villain, and no defense, rebuttal, mea culpa, or objective truth could change their minds. If anything, it would only dig their heels deeper into the story they wanted, needed, to believe. So they punished him, the way they always did a traitor. They shaved his head and beard, then beat him to the brink of death. They banished him to the Cross Timbers woods without food, money, or medicine, knowing full well that it was more than a punishment. It was murder. And soon, the Reaper, perhaps smelling the blood in the air, came to collect. The Peters Company sued the Akarians, running attachments on their personal property to cover their debts. They had no recourse, no options, and they made no resistance when the state repossessed the land. They divided the remaining cash among the members, about $7 each, and abandoned everything they'd bled to build. A handful of useless, ramshackle sheds, and a graveyard. Their utopia. 
With Favard leading the way, they packed up their rucksacks and headed back to Shreveport. By the time they got to Sulphur Prairie, they already had four more graves to dig. They gathered their things from the storerooms in Shreveport and took a riverboat down to New Orleans to await the arrival of their so-called father. Newcomers from France arrived throughout the fall and winter, bringing along with them their obnoxious naivete and optimism, as well as a few recent issues of Les Populaires, the ones that told the world all about the amazing and beautiful adventures they'd been having in Icaria. Even before he set sail for Texas, Cabay was in damage control mode, describing the, quote, disaster in Texas as a complex event that failed by no fault of his own. As far as we can tell, the only reason he even made the voyage to America was to avoid the lawsuits and another prison sentence for fraud. When Cabay finally arrived in New Orleans in January 1849, he found himself face to face with a mob of angry Icarians demanding answers but all he got were excuses. He blamed Charles Sully for giving him bad information about that, quote, wrathful tyrant, the Red River. He blamed the revolutionaries in France. He blamed bad fortune. He blamed the absence of his own wise and indispensable leadership in the colony. He blamed the Icarians themselves for not having the foresight to stock up on medicines while in New Orleans and for working themselves too hard to fulfill the bullshit agreement that he himself had made. He even cited a supposed false report of his death in an American newspaper. He literally blamed fake news. He also seized on Favard's ridiculous fabricated conspiracy theory. Because Adolphe Gounant was totally a secret state operative, working in the shadows to undermine Cabe's otherwise infallible and genius leadership. But the doctor, Juan Rivera, refused to let him pull that shit. He confronted Cabe and called him out on his lies. But by that point, Cabe had had a few years of the whole cult leader thing under his belt. So without hesitation, and without addressing any of Rivera's very valid points, he simply accused the doctor of poisoning the settlers by, quote, giving them violent remedies in excess. He offered no evidence, he just made it up. And that was it. Enraged, Rivera stormed off into the streets of New Orleans, where he found himself a cheap room for lead, and shot himself in the head. Cabet dipped into the Icarian treasury and spent more than half of the remaining funds paying off the defectors to keep them quiet and send them on their way. They hopped on the next boat home to France, hoping for the best, but no matter what waited for them on their return, it was the only choice they had. Anywhere but here. Anything but this. Even after all that, half the Icarians, by some estimates as many as 300, stayed behind. Mostly fresh faces, but also a handful of veteran avant-garde who just weren't ready to give up the dream. They were the diehards, the true believers. They'd invested everything they had, and everything they were, in their father and his vision. Even with all his obvious flaws laid bare, the broken promises, deception, and death, they would never abandon him. They couldn't. They'd sooner follow a fraud to hell than admit to each other, to themselves, they'd been had. So, chins up, smiles wide, and all dressed up in their creepy matching outfits, the Icarians embarked on a new pilgrimage, this time to Nauvoo, Illinois, where Cabay purchased a fully furnished settlement from another group of true believers, who'd been forced to abandon it after their leader, a man who promised utopia and fled charges of fraud, was shot to death by an angry mob of his own followers. The remaining loyalists, led by a man named Brigham Young, ended up in Utah, 
and did pretty well for themselves, all things considered. The Akarians made the Illinois settlement their home for a few years before it eventually collapsed under the increasingly authoritarian leadership of Kabe. His vision was constantly evolving, often contradicting itself and changing on a whim. His vanity was all that mattered to him, and his loyal followers became little more than disposable pawns in his grandiose schemes and his desperate attempts to save face when they failed. Some of his followers eventually got fed up and ran him out of the settlement, but even then, the most diehard of the diehard followed him all the way to St. Louis to give his utopia thing one last try. And like they say, third time's a charm. Within a week of arriving in Missouri, Etienne Cabe suffered a stroke, and then another, and the third, they say, finally killed him. But there was one Akarian who never left Texas. The banishment of Adolphe Gunant was supposed to be a death sentence. His own brothers had beaten him, robbed him of all but the clothes on his back, and watched as he dragged himself through the brambles and thickets until his broken body was lost among the trees. He found himself in exile in an alien land of tangled thorns cut through by rivers of poison that dried to bone when the torrential rains weren't flooding them to drown. The cross timbers turned out to be a utopia after all. Nowhere would nowhere to go, and they ate Akarians alive. But Adolphe Gunant was no Akarian, not anymore. He found a way to hunt, living off venison and selling the hides until his wounds hardened into scars. Adolphe Gunant survived. Adolphe Gunant was a Texan. He eventually made his way south to Fort Worth, where he met a retired U.S. Army major with a quirky penchant for European philosophy. The major took him in and gave him a job as a draftsman and accountant, and a tough love crash course in the English language. Gunat proved to be a fast learner, and within a few years, he was a productive, even prominent citizen of Dallas. During the last two decades of his life, he was an artist, a saloon keeper, a doctor, and an English teacher for immigrants like himself. Survivors. Texans. Meanwhile, in France, Victor Considerant was a rising star in French politics. He'd written several books, preempting Marx's manifesto by five years, and his newspaper, The Pacific Democrat, was really taking off. He was one of the earliest advocates of proportional representation in government, and he may very well have coined the term direct democracy. Much like Cabe, Considerant was a utopian socialist who, despite his activism and surprise election to national office, was losing hope for the future of his homeland. Louis-Napoleon assumed control of France after the ouster of Louis-Philippe, promising reform and a drift towards democracy. But we've heard that before. Shortly after taking office, he took a hard right turn, shutting down Considerant's newspaper and sending him into exile in Belgium. But Victor Considerant was only emboldened in his beliefs, and if France was indeed a lost cause, he'd make his own country. One where the cry for liberty, equality, and fraternity was more than just the delirious whisper of revolutionaries bleeding out in the streets of Paris. And he already had a blueprint for his utopia, the philosophies of Charles Fourier. While his contemporary Robert Owen was known for his secular, pragmatic activism, Fourier was more of an idea man. To him, revolution was just a part of God's divine plan, an obvious inevitability if good people could simply nudge things in the right direction. He strongly opposed the concept of marriage and was a pioneer of sexual liberation. 
He was an early advocate for gay rights and even coined the term feminism. He had a lot of names for his insanely complex and sprawling ideology, but is mostly known these days as associationism, and it's complicated. One scholar put it delicately when he described it as vast and eccentric. It's based on a theory he called attractive labor, where things like industry, crafts, and agriculture would naturally flourish if only folks were free to pursue their passions. As anarchist Hakim Bey explains it, Fourier sexualizes work itself. The life of the phalanstery is a continual orgy of intense feeling, intellection, and activity, a society of lovers and wild enthusiasts. It doesn't sound all that bad, but it's worth noting that Fourier was also an extremely outspoken anti-Semite who believed his teachings would allow people to grow tails and live to be 144 years old. You know, so that's a thing. Victor Considerant got a tip from a comrade that America might be worth a visit. Fourier's teachings were surprisingly popular among the American working class at the time, and with so much land available for the taking, the New World might be the ideal place to kick off God's divine labor sexual revolution. Considerant arrived in New York City in 1853 and struck up a conversation with a woman at a tavern. Philosophy wasn't really her thing, but she dabbled a bit and happened to know a guy down in Texas, an old army major who just loved to meet a bona fide French radical like him. So she made some arrangements and Victor Considerant boarded a train to Fort Worth, Texas. The major happily took him in and insisted he meet a friend of his, another Frenchman, a utopian just like him, Adolphe Gounod. Gounod took Considerant on a tour of the area, regaling him with stories of the Akarian experiment and the wonders of Texas. There's not a lot written about their time together, and we can't say for sure what Gounod told him, or didn't tell him. But Considerant returned to France with glowing reviews of the Texan experience and designs on attractive land in Tarrant County. And we're inclined to agree with the historians who speculate that it was no accident. We're not sure why Gounot would intentionally lie about the horrors he experienced. But while Considerant was in France, the land he wanted was sold out from under him by the W.S. Peters Company to Adolphe Gounot. Luckily, he had a backup. Attractive land by the Trinity River, about three miles west of modern downtown Dallas. A place where beautiful white chalk hills and naturally growing grapevines reminded him so much of the French wine country he'd leave behind. He published an essay, Ou Texas, gushing over the beauty and perfection of his new land claim. His exaggerations weren't quite on the level of Cabet, but let's just say the impresarios would have been proud. He put out a call for socialists, anarchists, and radicals of all stripes and nations. We found a new home, and now we'll find each other, not in first meeting, but in reunion. Still, the world wasn't a utopia, at least not yet, and if he wanted to make his dreams a reality, Considerant needed money. He assembled a group of investors on the promise that the settlers would cultivate the land and pay 6% interest on the loan every year. It worked. And within a few months, the first wave of settlers landed in Galveston, Texas, and set out on the long journey to Dallas. It was a six-week trip by foot and wagon, but they had good timing. It was spring, the weather was nice, and the wildflowers were in full bloom. A sea of blue bonnets stretched all the way to the sunset, dotted here and there with vibrant bursts of red and orange. Strange little flowers the Texans affectionately called Indian paintbrushes, or if they were feeling poetic, prairie fire. But spring here is short, and for all its temperance and beauty, those fleeting weeks of springtime are little more than a mask. 
a friendly inviting face that lulls and lures before it shrivels and burns away in the summer swelter. And its true face is an ugly one. But the travelers looked out on the colorful hills and prairies of their new home and saw nothing but beauty, just as Considerana described it. On April 26th, 1855, the caravan arrived in the village of Dallas, a procession of ox-drawn carts, comically overloaded with possessions and supplies stacked a dozen feet high, flanked by strangers from a strange land, fatigued and famished, but brimming with hope. For the Dallasites, the long parade of outlanders in matching black smocks, berets, and wooden shoes might as well have been a Barnum circus train. The village all but shut down as people flooded the streets to greet the newcomers, hoisting their children up on their shoulders to get a better look. The weary travelers were pleasantly surprised to receive such a warm welcome, and we're a little surprised ourselves. Texan hospitality is definitely a thing. King of the Hill might as well be a documentary. But it's still hard for us to believe how positive and friendly the reception had been for a caravan of socialist immigrants suddenly arriving at their front door. As much as they appreciated the kindness and generosity of their new neighbors and the chance to rest their calloused feet, the colonists had work to do, a lot of it. So they politely bid farewell and crossed the Trinity River to set up camp on their new land before nightfall. The settlers were cutting lumber by dawn, and it wouldn't be long before they had themselves a respectable little settlement. Over the next few weeks and months, waves of new recruits arrived to bolster the ranks and pitch in however they could including Victor Considerant himself. His arrival was met by dozens of hopeful, smiling faces, alight in the spring sunshine reflecting off the white chalk hills. His reunion had become a reality, one even more blithe and radiant than it had been as a wishful dream. The colony still needed a name, though, and he could think of none better than that fairy call that had brought them all there together, La Reunion. They established a democratic general assembly with Considerant as president and in keeping with Fourier's prescription for a proper utopia, they never built any schools or churches. They didn't need them. Everyone pitched in what they could, their talents and abilities, and most importantly, their passions. Tribulations came with the summer as they always did. The brutal heat turning the soil to rock, the wolves and coyotes, droughts that turned the prairies into powder kegs and swarms of grasshoppers ravaging the few crops they'd been able to grow. But the colonists took it all in stride. C'est la vie. After all, grasshoppers were good eaten, or at least the old folks thought so. Every Saturday and Sunday night, when the day's work was done, they gathered in the commons to sing and dance and spite the bitter sun as it sank in retreat beneath the horizon. Many of them were musicians, and one even brought with him a piano all the way across the ocean only the second one ever known in Dallas County. They filled the night with joy and song, and soon the folks from Dallas joined in. They celebrated the 4th of July together that year, reveling in their shared history and desire for freedom. The settlers did their best to follow Fourier's teachings, but they just couldn't bring themselves to abolish marriage, and the colony hosted their first wedding that autumn. A young reunion woman who fell in love with a man from Dallas. The colonists and villagers became family that day, bound together by land, liberation, and love. Till death, as they say. That winter was a brutal one. The houses they'd built, as decent as they were in the springtime, were unsealed and thin, and the freezing winter winds whistled through the gaps between the boards. 
Matches were a rare luxury at the time, and the settlers had to take shifts pushing a wheelbarrow full of burning coal embers and scrap wood from house to house to share the warmth. It seemed like as soon as one storm passed, another took its place, each more vicious than the last. The colonists took to rooming together in cramped quarters, shivering through the night, grasping for sleep in the momentary calm between claps of thunder. Lightning struck one of the main dorms, sending a shockwave through the house, dislodging the bunk beds from their frames and sending them and their occupants scattering across the floor. But the injuries were light and the damage fixable, and the settlers refused to give the savage winter the satisfaction of their despair. Soon the ice disappeared beneath the wildflowers, islands of fire and seas of blue. The colonists shook off the sleet and once again filled the prairie with song. But there was just one little problem, something they'd neglected to consider when the call for reunion first rang out. Not everyone heard it, and the ones who did were the kind of people who'd be totally stoked on radical socioeconomic theory and also happened to be well-off, passionate, open-minded, and crazy enough to actually try it. Nearly every member of La Reunion was an artist, a writer, academic, naturalist, or anyone else you might expect to find at an NPR pledge drive but they weren't exactly frontiersmen. There were only two farmers in the entire colony, and it was starting to dawn on the settlers that maybe Fourier hadn't really taken into consideration the scope of his audience. Those majestic white chalk hills that reminded them so romantically of the European countryside were actually massive deposits of limestone, chalk, and shale, making the soil practically useless for growing crops. What little wheat they were able to harvest cost them more to grow than they could get from selling it to their spiritual in-laws over in Dallas, much less anywhere else. And things were getting dire. To make matters worse, the broader country in which they'd made their home was riven in two over the state's rights to declare human beings as property. Tensions between the North and South were about to boil over, and the fabric of the nation was stretched to the breaking point. People were starting to choose sides. For the colonists of Law Reunion, abolition was the obvious choice, the only choice, and the relationship they'd cultivated with the Dallasites was beginning to sour. They were dispirited, they'd lost their will to sing and dance, and resentment was growing for those who sowed less than they could or should and still reaped an equal share of the bounty. No matter how committed they were and how hard they fought to make Law Reunion a utopia in Fourier's image, this was still Texas. A land of rebellion often misplaced, of superiority often without foundation, and greed always without limit. But that's not all of us, and it's not the whole story. In Texas, individualism just grows like wildflowers. As any Texan farmer can tell you, even the blue bonnets and Indian paintbrushes are just weeds. They're inconvenient, ungovernable, unavoidable, and they're beautiful. But they can be absolute hell on your best laid plans. The sense of shared values and camaraderie were dwindling, cliques and factions were forming, and the very things that brought them together in reunion, Fourier's philosophy and Considerant's vision, felt with each passing day a little more like a wishful dream. The Swiss settlers abandoned the colony and most of their utopian ideals along with it, establishing a new settlement, Moon's Lake, on the other side of the Trinity River. The Belgians soon followed suit with a settlement they called Louvain, Another faction blamed Considerant's mismanagement for the colony's woes, holding out hope for utopia, but with a fresh start. They packed up and moved to a new tract of land to try again with new leadership, but Flanders Heights, as they called it, 
soon became just another neighborhood in Dallas. Just as summer began creeping across the prairie, fangs bared and out for blood, the colony's foreign investors called in the 6% return they'd been promised. And just like it had with the Ikarians before them, the grim reaper of debt, ever circling over them like a carrion bird, finally swooped down on La Reunion to pick clean the bones. The few remaining settlers turned to their president for guidance, leadership, the next step, a plan, anything to salvage and redeem all they'd worked so hard to build. But their knock on his cabin door rang hollow, and so it seemed did his commitment to the cause. In the cover of early morning darkness, Victor Considerant had packed a bag and fled for San Antonio, then Galveston, then back to France. He'd abandoned them there in the crumbling ruins of his own dream, and worse still, he disowned them, declaring what remained of La Reunion, quote, a fatherless bastard. The settlers were heartbroken and betrayed, but they soldiered on without him and managed to hold out for another two years before things finally fell apart for good in 1858. As historian Hermance V. Rejebian put it, There was no outbreak, no town meeting for discussion. The whole colony, consisting then of some 500 persons, just melted away. But the spirit of La Reunion, that dream for a better world, didn't die in those white chalk hills. The village of Dallas had grown into a city, and those who stayed behind became a part of it. Sure, in a Texan frontier settlement, craftsmen and artisans are often little more than fodder for the cemetery. But in a city, they're the heart and soul. The survivors of La Reunion were teachers and architects, artists and scientists. They opened the first bakery in Dallas, the first brewery and butcher shop. They established the city's first public school system and wrote one of the first columns in the city's first newspaper, using the platform to propose a new bridge across the Trinity River, one that wouldn't charge a toll, one that would be accessible to everyone and belong to all people equally. One former settler became an acclaimed botanist at Baylor University. Another got elected deputy sheriff and then mayor, twice. In the aftermath of the Civil War, Reconstruction leaders were tasked with recruiting non-Confederates to fill local government positions throughout the South, and it was a struggle to say the least. Finding non-Confederates who were educated, civic-minded folks willing to volunteer their time for the public good was damn near impossible in most Southern cities. But Dallas had them in spades. The dream of Texas as a socialist utopia died with La Reunion. The colonists assimilated into the free market free-for-all that marked the dawn of the Gilded Age. But as immigrants so often and crucially do, they stirred a few of their own ingredients into the melting pot. Tolerance, education, civic responsibility, public commons, charity, art, music, and culture. It wasn't exactly the liberté, égalité, fraternité they'd hoped for. But if it hadn't been for the doomed utopia of a handful of French artists, radicals, and dreamers, Dallas wouldn't be Dallas, and Texas wouldn't be Texas. Those of us who live in the area have seen, heard, and felt their legacy for generations, without even knowing it. There's a few streets and parks named after the colonists. Revachon, Nussbaumer, Ball, Cantagral, but La Reunion itself is all but forgotten. Corporations eventually bought the land and mined it for cement, building an industrial company town over the ruins of the old commune. At its peak, only about 600 people called Cement City their home, and within a few decades, it was swallowed up by the urban growth of Dallas proper. The tiny town did have one claim to fame, though. 
On a cold January day in 1930, a young, working poor girl from Cement City met a boy from Dallas. And the moment they caught eyes, they knew they'd love each other till the day they died. And they did. But unlike that first young couple in La Reunion, almost 70 years before them, you'd be hard fought to find anyone who doesn't know their names. Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. But that's a story for another episode. All that remains of the colony today is their cemetery, an acre of grass behind an apartment complex cordoned off by a chain link fence. Up until the 1930s, it served as a kind of charity cemetery, a final resting place for the poor and unclaimed, just like the folks buried there would have wanted. But as urban development overtook the region, the graveyard fell into disrepair. The tombstones disappeared beneath the uncut grass and scattered refuse of a world that had moved on. For a time in the 1950s, a descendant of the colonists did his best to tend to the land, even built the chain link fence that still stands there to this day. But after he died, there was no one left to care. The Dallas Housing Authority eventually took control of the land surrounding it, but they didn't have jurisdiction over the cemetery itself. In fact, no one seemed to know who actually owned the property. In 1973, the city council declared it, quote, neglected, overgrown, and abandoned. The health department declared it a public nuisance, and the Texas Historical Commission, God bless them, declared it a state landmark. Even so, the government didn't claim or caretake it, and no private interests ever stepped forward to prove rightful ownership. Law Reunion Cemetery is, and seemingly always has been, without an owner, stateless and free just like the folks buried there would have wanted. But after a century of weathering, erosion, and neglect, the gravestones are crumbling, the names etched into them fading, a few already lost to history and awaiting the rest to join them in the final reunion, erased, as all things are, in the procession of time. But around 2009, a handful of locals pitched in, including a landscaper, a few residents of the nearby apartments, and folks who just felt a civic responsibility to contribute to the community they called home, and do what they could to preserve the most crucial part of it, its history. For nearly a decade now, La Reunion Cemetery has been a ward of the people, volunteers who have nothing to gain from it, but who recognize just how much we all stand to lose. They can't keep it up forever though. Others like them, like us, like you, have to tag in, pick up where they left off. There are some things that just can't be left to private profiteers or government bureaucracies. Some things, good things, can only happen if we step up to do them together, just like the radicals buried there would have wanted. Vines grow over the broken stones and fading memories of La Reunion Cemetery. Grapevines, tangled and wild. And they're a rare kind, native only to the picturesque countryside of France. Over the years, the volunteers have cut and cleared them away from the tombstones, but they always grow back. In 1978, entrepreneur John Scoville and oil baron Ray Hunt launched a development project on the west end of downtown Dallas, real estate that at the time was written off as mostly worthless. They ignored the naysayers and soon broke ground on a luxury hotel and cutting-edge skyscraper with an unusual design. It was three 50-story concrete columns holding aloft a giant glass sphere caged in geodesic steel girders and covered in lights. They needed a name for the project and Scoville thought their working title, Esplande, was a little too blasé, 
So we skimmed through a book of local history for inspiration, and one word just popped out on the page. Reunion. He thought it evoked positive ideas like homecoming and celebration, and he wasn't wrong. The investors loved the new name, and the Reunion District of Dallas was born. An arena was built the following year, home to Dallas's pro basketball and hockey teams for 20 years before it was torn down. Reunion Tower became the most recognized and iconic feature of the Dallas skyline. It still is, and thanks to the TV show Dallas, the tower is famous the world over, and nowhere more so than France. Anytime he's been asked about the socialist roots of the name, Scovell just shrugs it off. He once said, I think Dallasites in particular, Texans, were not big veterans on history. Fuck off. The Reunion District is over three miles away from the actual site of its namesake colony, but Scoville built a sort of memorial for it in the lobby of his hotel. And to his credit, it might be the most comprehensive exhibit of La Reunion's history you're likely to find anywhere outside of a library basement, but that's not saying much. There's a mural painted on the wall, some old maps, certificates, and other paraphernalia, and the hotel bar is named after the colony's brewer, Monduel. Victor Considerant probably wouldn't have cared much for his legacy living on as a garish, cynical display in a fancy hotel for rich capitalists. But for what it's worth, a portrait of his face hangs on the wall, forever glaring across the room in disapproval at the all-you-can-eat breakfast buffet. In 1882, the Galveston Daily News was one of the biggest, most acclaimed newspapers in the state, and they were looking to expand. Publisher George Dealey traveled up to North Texas to scout a location for a new spin-off outlet, and cities in the area scrambled to court his favor. A group of citizens, business leaders, academics, and even migrant workers, led by former members of the Peters Colony and La Reunion, pulled their resources and lobbied Dealey to bring the new paper to Dallas. The Dallas Morning News fired up the presses in 1885, and within a decade, George Dealey was at the top of the masthead. They were at the forefront of a new wave of modern journalism, using telegraphs to communicate info and leads back and forth with their sister paper in Galveston, making them the first newspapers in America to publish simultaneous editions. They refused to be mouthpieces for any political party and established a model for objectivity and integrity in journalism. It was clear from day one that the paper was gonna shake things up around here. And when Dealey bought the company in 1926, he took it to a whole new level. He refused to run ads for anything he felt was ethically dubious or just flat out wrong. Everything from hard liquor to oil companies. But it was his use of the editorial board that would come to cement the upstart paper as a statewide, even national, institution. Under Dealey's direction, the op-ed page of the Dallas Morning News became a hotbed of activism and advocacy, spreading progressive new ideas and steadfastly unafraid to challenge and call out the city's deeply entrenched status quo. Their efforts paved the way for countless groundbreaking civic improvements throughout Dallas and beyond, but their most ambitious and dangerous mission would come to change Texas politics and history forever. In the early 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan basically ran Dallas. They controlled the city council, the mayor's office, and huge swaths of the business community. Few of them even had jobs at Dealey's own newspaper. He was appalled by their rise to power, and he made it his personal mission and a top priority of the Dallas Morning News to bring them down. He ran a piece from a New York paper that shined a glaring light on the crimes and atrocities of the Klan. 
illuminating in full, uncompromising detail the terror they represented and wrought on the country. The backlash came fast and fierce. Public outcry, intimidation, death threats. But Dealey was just getting started. Rather than back down, he ramped up, turning the op-ed section of the morning news into a non-stop barrage of anti-Klan propaganda. Laser focused on exposing them for what they were and unseating any public officials who refused to denounce and renounce their hate. One of the paper's traveling agents pulled Dealey aside and begged him to back off. He said all this anti-Klan stuff was wreaking havoc on sales, especially in rural areas around the state. But Dealey shut him down. Buck up, son, he said. Never make apologies for the Dallas Morning News. The paper's parent company was freaking out. They saw it as a PR nightmare, and the shareholders were demanding action. They told Dealey to turn over all his employee records to the higher-ups for review. They needed to reassure their readers that there weren't any Catholics or Jews involved in reporting the daily news. But Dealey refused, publicly. He called up the editors at the Dallas Times-Herald and Dallas Dispatch and asked them to do something unprecedented, to set aside their competition in service of something greater, something more important than anyone's bottom line. He proposed an alliance to stand together in solidarity and wrestle the reins of power from the stranglehold of bigotry, to use their collective voice as a weapon to fight for the future and the soul of their city. It was a long shot. The Klan was deeply entrenched in politics, not just in Dallas, but throughout the state. But Dealey and his underdog alliance of journalists had at least one advantage over the Goliath they faced, the truth and the pen that could lay it bare for all to see. What little remained of the city's leftist and liberal activists teamed up with the Dallas Women's Voters League, integrating them into their leadership and shattering the glass ceiling of civic action in the state. They joined with Dealey's newspaper alliance, forming a united front with a singular, uncompromising objective, ridding the state of Texas of the Ku Klux Klan. And their combined efforts paid off. The Klan was swept out of public office in Dallas within only a few years. But they were determined to go bigger, setting their sights on Austin, gunning for every government office in the state, hell-bent and dead set on taking Texas back. They threw their full support behind anti-Klan candidates, even if they weren't up to their standards on other issues. The Klansmen had to go full stop, and they could sort the rest out later. Dealey and his allies decided to back Miriam Ma Ferguson in her 1924 campaign against George C. Butte, a Republican endorsed by the Klan. And she won, becoming the first woman ever elected as governor of Texas and the second woman ever to become governor in the history of the United States. Ma Ferguson was a deeply flawed person and politician, but that was beside the point. Her election dealt a huge blow to the Klan's political power, and that was all that mattered. In fact, when she came up in a runoff election, Dealey and the Morning News backed her opponent, Dan Moody, a district attorney who fought hard to prosecute Klansmen when no one else would. And his victory in the election was a turning point, one that prompted the Democratic Party of Texas to sever ties permanently with the Ku Klux Klan. Dealey's alliance of activists, feminists, and journalists wrestled Texas from the jaws of hate and single-handedly, together, changed the course of history. But even when he clocked out at the end of the day, Dealey's work was not yet done. He founded WFAA, Dallas's acclaimed broadcast news outlet. 
He served on the National Committee of the Commission on Interracial Cooperation. He helped establish Southern Methodist University, SMU. He was the founder and president of one of Dallas's first social services agencies. He was the director of the Children's Hospital of Texas, a founder and lifetime president of the Dallas Historical Society, and vice president of the Associated Press. And that's not even half of it. In 1934, the city of Dallas rightly felt it owed him a debt of gratitude, and they broke ground on a revitalized section of downtown Dallas to be named in his honor. At first, he refused, grateful, but too humble for such a thing. But his son eventually convinced him to accept. The land for the project was donated by one of Dealey's kindred spirits, a philanthropist and pioneering businesswoman, Sarah Horton Cockrell, and it had a rich history. It was the site of the first home ever built in Dallas, the first courthouse, first store, and first fraternal lodge. It was an area that truly earned its nickname, the birthplace of Dallas. During a ceremony to kick off the World's Fair in 1936, Dealey Plaza opened to the public for the very first time. Even in his mid-80s, George Dealey refused to retire from the Dallas Morning News and kept up his lifelong battle against the forces of hatred and oppression in service to no master but the truth until 1946 when death itself came to pry the pen from his cold, dead hands. George Dealey wasn't a descendant of Vicaria or Law Reunion, but he's one of the many fearless and amazing people who shared in the unwavering belief that things can truly change for the better if only good people step up and nudge things in the right direction. In 1949, the city erected a statue of his likeness in the plaza that bore his name, commemorating and celebrating his contributions to Dallas, to Texas, to journalism, and the world. But only a decade and a half after its unveiling, his memorial would disappear under the shadow of a simple white X painted in the middle of the street. A shadow that would appropriate his name and forever obscure his legacy in the darkness of another man's deeds. A man who spent his whole life trying to leave this place, moving all over the country, dropping out of school, joining the Marines, then lying to get out again trying and failing to defect to the Soviet Union, abandoning his family for Mexico, even attempting suicide. But he kept ending up right back where he started. No matter what he did or how hard he fought to escape, Texas just had a way of calling him home. His wife helped him get a minimum wage job filling orders for school textbooks in a warehouse downtown. They were living out in the Dallas suburb of Irving, and he didn't have a car, so his neighbor and co-worker, Wesley Frazier, gave him a ride to work most days. One Friday morning, he showed up earlier than usual, pacing around outside the window while Wesley and his family finished breakfast at the kitchen table. Now, did your sister say anything to you as you were having breakfast? Uh, no, she didn't say anything to me at all. I just saw him for a split second, I guess he heard me say, well, it's time to go. And he walked down by the back door there. Wesley hurried to brush his teeth, kiss his nieces goodbye, and head out the door. It was raining that morning, so they loaded up quick and hit the road. I noticed there's a package laying on back seat. I didn't pay too much attention, and I said, what's the package, Lee? And he said, curtain rods. And I said, oh yeah, you told me you was gonna bring something today. Uh, so I didn't think any more about it when he told me that. What did the package look like? 
Uh, you, you seen some of the brown paper sacks you can obtain uh, from any most of the store, most of the stores. Uh, but it was a package, just roughly about two feet long, give and take a few inches. Was there anything more said about the paper sack on the way into town? Uh, no, sir, there wasn't. Who got out of the car first? Uh, he he did. There was still a few minutes early, so Wesley sat in the car for a bit, running the motor to charge the battery, just watching the cars roll by on the freeway. But Lee Harvey Oswald was in a hurry that day, didn't even remember to pack himself a lunch. Did you usually walk up there together? Uh, yes, sir, uh, we did. Is this the first time he had ever walked ahead of you? Uh, yes, sir, he did. You say he had the package under his arm when you saw him. Yes, sir. Uh, well, I'll be frank with you. I didn't pay any attention to it, and he never had lied to me before, so I never did have any reason uh, to doubt his word. Were you on the sixth floor any that morning? The first few hours of work were no different than any other day, filling orders and filling out invoices. But come lunchtime, a motorcade was set to roll through town, right down Elm Street, and everybody was going to be on break to watch it go by. I say, you know, you don't get very many chances to see the President of the United States and being an old Texas boy, and him never having been down to Texas much, I went out there to see him. Wesley looked around, but he didn't see his friend Lee anywhere out in the crowd. Maybe he was still trying to hunt down a lunch. Surely he wouldn't miss a thing like this. I stayed around there pretty close to Mr. Shelley, just talking about how pretty a day it turned out to be. Uh, because I told you earlier, it was an old cloudy and misty day, and then I didn't look like it was going to be a pretty day at all. And it turned out to be a good day? A pretty sunshiny day. On November 22nd, 1963, at 12.30 p.m., 15 years after the commission of George Dealey's statue, a self-avowed communist assassinated the President of the United States only 300 yards from a worthless piece of real estate that 15 years later would become a luxury property named for a communist utopia that made the city everything it is and everything it might have been. Uh, people were running and hollering, so I just stood still. I've always been taught uh, when something like that happened, it's always best to stand still because if you run, that makes you look guilty, uh, sure enough. But you stood right there, did you? Uh, stood right where I was. One, two, three. One, seven, five, whiskey. Going down my road. They say history repeats, or at least rhymes, but in Texas, it echoes. The same words in a different voice, distorted and warped by time and distance, but always returning, deeper, darker, unrecognizable, and made new again. Texas is haunted by the voices of the past, those who defined it and those who defiled it. Ghosts that have long since forgotten their own names, but have never forgotten why they're here. Our next episode will pick up where we left off, the 1960s. And fair warning, on this leg of the journey, up and out into the blackness between, there are no stars.
Texarkana is written and produced by us, Ryan Sheffield and Brad Dewar, recorded here in beautiful Denton, Texas, home of the Morrison's Corn Kits Factory, our very own Reunion Tower. Our theme music in this episode's outro song are by Whiskey Folk Ramblers, and they're probably at a gas station somewhere in North Richland Hills. Additional music by Less Than One, used under Creative Commons license and available at freemusicarchive.org. There's another story of Texan utopia we couldn't quite fit into this episode, uh, but we're going to make it available for our supporters on Patreon, and it's uh, it's it's pretty weird. Uh, it's a it's a wild ride. Seriously, bananas. It's pretty, pretty wacky. Uh, <laughs> Is that what I said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're not a supporter, uh, we hope it might change your mind. Bonnie and Herf will return. Thanks for listening, y'all. Yeah.